Meet me at the Chasen. I'm your host, Jennifer Fields. The following episode is a recording of a live panel discussion held in the Chasen Museum of Art in November of 2022. The discussion was entitled, Monuments Reimagined, Contemporary Artists as Changemakers. The topic, how can we rememorialize our shared past? It was my pleasure to host a conversation about the role of contemporary artists in disrupting the narrative of public art, forging new paths, and understanding the role it plays, if any, in community identity. Good morning, everyone. Sorry, I didn't mean to start. I startled you. My name is Candy Waterloo, and I'm head of education here at the Chazen. Um, I want to thank you for joining us in this space. And before we begin the program, we're going to start with what we do at the top of every program and read the land acknowledgement here at the university. The University of Wisconsin-Madison occupies ancestral Ho-Chunk land, a place their nation has called Dejope since time immemorial. In an 1832 treaty, the Ho-Chunk were forced to cede this territory. Decades of ethnic cleansing followed when both the federal and state government repeatedly but unsuccessfully sought to forcibly remove the Ho-Chunk from Wisconsin. This history of colonization informs our shared future of collaboration and innovation. Today, UW-Madison respects the inherent sovereignty of the Ho-Chunk Nation, along with 11 other First Nations of Wisconsin. Today's panel, Monuments Reimagined, our Contemporary Artists as Changemakers, is moderated by Chazen Storyteller-in-Residence, Jennifer Fields. I could spend, uh, yeah, Jennifer. <laughs> Uh, Jennifer and our esteemed panelists will contend with questions about how we can rememorialize our shared past in ways that disrupt the status quo. I could spend the entire hour listing the credentials and achievements of, the, of our guests, but I won't do that because I know we want to get to um, what will be a robust discussion. So I'm just going to go from uh, far to close to me. <laughs> so joining us is Director of Partnerships at Monument Lab, Naima Murphy-Salcedo. Uh, sitting next to Naima is contemporary artist Sanford Biggers. Yay. Next, we have independent curatorial consultant Marilou Canode. And last but not least, Chazen Family Distinguished Chair in Art and Professor here at UW-Madison, Faisal Abdullah. All right, Jennifer, take it away. Okay, hello, my name is Jennifer Fields, but you already know that. So what I'm going to do is that I really wanted to focus this conversation on what is a monument and how that creates a space and how it creates place for a community. But we're currently reading this book, How the Word, Word is Passed by Clint Smith, and there's a paragraph in here that I want to start off with. And I timed myself. It takes me three seconds to read a line, so this should be 26 seconds. Take out your stopwatches if you dare. And it's as follows. New Orleans is my home. It is where I was born and raised. It is part of me in ways I continue to discover. But I came to realize that I knew relatively little about my hometown's relationship to the centuries of bondage rooted in the city's soft earth, in the statues I had walked past daily, the names and streets I had lived on, the schools I had attended, and the buildings that had once been nothing more to me than remnants of colonial architecture. It was all right in front of me, even when I didn't know to look for it. And I think that's one of the key elements of what a monument is. But I'd like to start this conversation by asking you, Naima, what is a monument? How do we define monuments? Yeah, no, thank you. Um, 
So a lot of a lot, that question is something that pops up all the time. And I think in our work at Monument Lab, um, what we know for sure is that there isn't one definition of monument. Um, you know, we've taken a, it upon ourselves to define a monument as a statement of power and presence in public. Um, and that's how we kind of move through our own partnerships and relationships to really reimagine what it means to be in public space and be represented. Um, in a recent, in, a, in one of our recent projects, a national monument audit, we had to define a monument in order to count <laughs> um, and in order to create a data set. And we found that so that despite our own our own thinking and what many others um, think that sometimes there's an office somewhere like that is keeping tabs on all the monuments, making sure um, their their upkeep is there, all that stuff. It's actually most often um, being tracked by property records. And so another kind of demonstration of that power in place of who owns this place and cares enough for, you know, certain monuments to, to stay erected. Um, so I guess that's a little nebulous, but for, for me and for, for the organization, it's really like a, that statement of power and presence. So Faisal and Sanford, as artists who place monuments, talk to me about the considerations of what you're thinking about when you're placing an object there. Is it the space that determines it? Is it the material? Is it the emotion of the, is it the, emotion of the message? How do you start to think about monumental work? When you, as, as you're creating and conceptualizing, and either one of you. I mean, I'll just quickly add, I mean, I mean, good morning. I mean, I just think from my standpoint, I think there's a sacred connection between memory and imagination. And that's the premise at which I start to insert myself into thinking about the, an object in, in public space. And I, and I think that if the memory is jaded or ill-informed, then the imagination can't function. So that's basically my kind of piece. And Sanford, how do you approach that? Um, well, first I try to determine if I am actually making a monument. Working monumentally versus making a monument are different things. And um, I take in consideration, obviously, the history of where the piece might be going, recent history, older history, and the demographic that it may be serving, and then what kind of statement I might be wanting to make with those uh, considerations in mind. So, um, again, you know, I've done pieces that I think memorialize things, but their scale actually has been diminutive. I've done pieces that are, you know, monumental. But I was very um, emphatic in saying that this is a contemporary artwork for people to come and put their ideas and their discussion to. It's not commemorating anything that's been here in the past. In fact, it's trying to open up a future dialogue. Um, but this is a case-by-case -case thing. There might be an opportunity or a situation where literally I would be replacing a monument um, and then my considerations might change, but so far that's how it's been. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that opening up is, is really important because, you know, I considered, you know, Blueprint almost like a porthole. That it's not a grandiose piece about me. It's more about coming to the work and understanding why the piece has come into existence because it's talking about far more complex issues. Something as simple as sitting in a chair, a barber chair, or sitting in a hairdresser's chair and understanding how transformative that is for a human being and how you're able to like you know um, occupy another space by being the best version of yourself through the laying on of hands and in some ways the hairstylist or the barber is doing a form of sculpting doing, doing a form of refashioning and it's also extraordinarily intimate i mean you just don't let anybody touch your head you know because it, it really does sort of determine how you move through the world and in, in terms of 
how monuments, monumental works are in the world. Marilee, talk to Marilee, talk to me about placement. Like how, what are you considering when you think about placing a monument in a space? I think <clears throat> I think uh, that really depends on what your opportunities are um, in in sort of where you're working. So, for example. I come, uh, I worked for many years at Alamar Sculpture Park in St. Louis, and what was really great about that was we controlled 105 acres, so we could sort of put things where we wanted. But our goal was um, to do works under the rubric archaeology of place, so that no matter, no matter what we did in this suburban landscape was to reinscribe a sense of place for people who don't really understand what landscape is. And so within the park, we have to figure out where is this going to be seen from a distance, you know, things really change when you're outside. You can really change scale. If we can take a Bernard Williams car made of plywood and it makes uh, Alexander Lieberman's huge piece look small as a result, that's where you're really playing with space and sort of conflating how it is that you relate to things. So when I worked for Sculpture Milwaukee, however, when you work in an urban environment, you have a whole different set of things to really contend with. And it's not just skateboarders. It's really about the size and shape of the buildings around you. And it's actually sort of, what does this financial district mean? You know, what does it mean for the city? What does it mean for the people who live here? And how can we empower people to feel that they belong there too? So scale and color has a lot to do with it for sure. We put a Tony Tacit blob monster in front of the federal building. Partially because there's nothing on the corner, because the feds don't like you to put crap on their corner. But it was a big, right, no, no bubbler bikes, but it was a big monster going like this. The kids loved it. And somebody said to me, but isn't this a, like a, a sort of a political statement too? Like, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. Of course it's a political statement, because everything's a political statement, right? So there's got to be some sort of context. So if you have a big, ugly building behind you, then you have to figure out how do you counter a big, ugly building. If it's a beautiful, exquisite building from you know, the 30s and it's Art Deco, then you put a Gata Amr next to it. So it really, you know, it's, it's being very sensitive to space. As a, I come as a, you know, from a position of a curator, but to support artists. You know, always the work that I do is in support of artists. What best makes their work look fantastic? But where's that critical commentary? Mm -hmm. For me, that was really a major um, consideration when doing the piece at Rockefeller Center, um, the Oracle. Um, so it ended up being, you know, a monolithic, black, very curvaceous figure amongst very tall, rigid, gray buildings. And, you know, arguably one of the most, uh, the busiest intersections and a symbol of commerce and the grandiosity of New York City. Mm -hmm. um, and there's already so many references to Greco-Roman history and mythology that I wanted to create something that potentially could create new myths. So I wanted it to function. It wasn't a passive piece, but it was one that engaged um, all the viewers, but it also changed. It worked really within the landscape. And I'm pretty sure you feel the same way about this, but that's part of the challenge and the fun of doing something at that scale is literally saying, how am I composing this within an urban or you know a suburban environment? And how does that environment affect the work? And then how does the work go back and affect the environment? And also, the, I think the, the conversation between the community and the work, mm -hmm. like how does that come in? Because I know you talk about putting like elements and symbols in your work, and you talk about monumental versus monument. Talk to me or talk to us about how that conversations with the community where this piece will be placed sort of comes into play. I mean, I always think it's important to not necessarily parachute ideas into communities. 
Um, and I think having some kind of shared history, some kind of platform for a shared history. And it was a beautiful uh, moment that took place was I got a, a photograph sent to me by Christina, the director of Momoka. And what happened was somebody had set up outside of the Chazen, cutting hair on a public street, literally six feet from my piece. And then they went out and they said, oh, why are you doing this? And he says he performed with public haircuts for people who maybe are homeless. And they said to him, have you seen that piece next to you? And he was like, no. And then he looked and then he, and then he recognized the contours on the chair, the contours on the chair. So obviously that is, a sim, that is a very kind of familiar, iconic Belmont barber chair. See, he immediately recognized it. And then this thing went wild on, on Instagram. So people began to understand that there was a familiar form that they could necessarily connect with historically. And they would talk about their parents taking them to the shop. So there was this really interesting conversation taking place once people saw there was a recognized form. And also the way in which the piece was, was, was augmented through Quora, because I said I wanted the base to be almost unfinished. And as you move through or elevate through the piece, there were certain finishes that I wanted. So we got in Martin Foot, who finished the hands and the head, which was a very important component for the piece. And in some ways, it's a metaphor for who we are as human beings, because limestone, as, as Jim would say, comes out of the ground hard and it so comes out of the ground soft and hardens over time. And they always say human beings, in some ways, you know, they harden as they get hold, older. Mm -hmm. And I would hope that they don't embrace that part of the stone, but they embrace the reverse of it. So I want them to soften as they mm -hmm. kind of meet the work. And how does the reflective quality play in your work, Sanford, that you have up? Um, so, yes, uh, unfortunately, I don't have an image of it, but you can look online. There is a, a, a new monumental piece, monumental scale piece, um, <laughs> in Orange County, the Orange County Museum called Of Many Waters. And it is made with a two-tone um, stainless steel uh, surface that has many discs. So some are black and some are reflective. And they blow in the wind. So when you see it from a distance, it looks like a large three-dimensional sculpture. The closer you get, you realize it's actually a flat facade that is animated by the wind moving these small little sequins, if you will, um, from side to side. Um, that, once again, very site-specific. This is in California. I'm originally from Los Angeles. And I was thinking about image, Hollywood, things that look full and robust, but they're often stage fronts and, you know, and so on, and the duplicity of that. Um, so um, on the back side of this piece, it actually looks like a large quilt. And in fact, I painted it to look like an anamorphic drawing. So if you're looking at it from the central axis, it looks like a perfectly symmetrical quilt. But when you deviate from that vantage point, it starts to fall apart. So once again, it was a lot about illusion, composition, reflection. Do you see yourself in this piece? The piece is almost Bacchanalian, so it's really laid back. It's um, also in front of a huge Richard Serra that is just... <laughs> tall and erect in front of it and so i wanted this figure to be <laughs> some bacchanalian laying on its side so it created di a, a different sort of landscape mm -hmm. so so naima as we talk about new piece that are monuments and monumental how is that changing the landscape of what we're seeing in terms of these large works in public places I mean, I think even what we've heard already, I think that contemporary artists bring a sense of, you know, that desire of folks to interact with their work or their, a knowledge that folks will interact with their work in public. And so there's like a very, there's a very clear sense of that. I, I find like in terms of how the, the monument landscape changes, I mean, the work that we do is both 
looking ahead at what a monument landscape could be in this country if it if we told more stories that represented um, the society we're part of, and then also reckoning with what we've inherited. And so, um, and part of that reckoning certainly includes, you know, recognizing the the kind of toxicity and the harm um, that a lot of monuments that that stand have. And it is also um, part of the reckoning is also acknowledging how folks have worked to reclaim those spaces, um, whether it's through protest um, to remove those monuments, whether it's how they've transformed uh, those monuments with projection um, or how the plinths stand on their own and become something brand new. And I think that those there's a connection there, um, both in reckoning with what we have and a vision looking ahead um, that I think is really um, that, you know, I'm proud to be a small part of, you know, working with with artists um, and kind of proto prototype monument um, opportunities, but also seeing across across the the um, the country and really world with artists who are saying, you know, these these curvatures, these experiences, they they relate to so many people who see their work or see their experiences you know, blown to, to monumental scale um, and then start to look around their environment a little bit more closely because they realize, like, that paragraph um, that you read, Jennifer, like, I think that I relate to that so much because you could either, you could either be ambivalent to what's around you because it doesn't feel like it's for you um, or as you start to see more objects that our monumental uh, sculpture or public works that really are speaking to you, you start to be able to claim more space in public as well and kind of claim that power that, you know, we have as individuals. And I wonder, does a monument then have a lifespan? Is it the history of the community that determines the lifespan of the monument or the people who are currently there? Who decides on the lifespan of a monument? Um, I think about this a lot, even when working at a more um, in interior scale. I think a good work of art has the ability to shapeshift over time. There are moments when that same artwork could be in favor and out of favor as culture evolves around it. So in that sense, when we finish a work, it's not necessarily static, doesn't exist in a vacuum. It actually does evolve as culture evolves or devolve as culture devolves. So, um, you know, it's a long game. You don't know exactly how it's going to wind up. Um, what I think is interesting, particularly about a, a lot of the protests regarding monuments and, and memorializations, is that we've seen so many different things happen. We've seen them be defaced. We've seen the projections. We've seen them removed. We've seen them put into water. And people are like, what do you think about each of those things, I'm like, I think that is the process itself. We're seeing several different examples of how people are reacting to it. I don't think one, I mean, I prefer some other than, you know, other actions, but I think all of them are, are important for us to start to figure out how do we contend with this, you know, with these histories. And I, I want to just jump in and say, so to your question, that um, so much of what we're talking about today is an evolution away from the 1% laws that were really public process, and these are much more curated activities. And that's partially to get away from the plop art phenomenon of the 60s and 70s, where you know, you commission something for the side of a very ugly corner in a city, and it's plop art, and it's not that attractive. So I think the fact that we re recognize the fact that um, public art by artists 
is such a critical way for us to think about the world that we live in, that there's been some sort of, you know, um, bringing that back into more high-level artistic realm. But I, I did want to bring up a piece that is in response specifically to the protests in Madison in 2020 at the state capitol, so that the protesters, um, everybody here's from Madison probably, <laughs> you know what happened. They took down Forward, which was a young idealized woman representing the state, and then um, Haig, Christian Haig, a Norwegian immigrant who actually who led the um, Wisconsin contingent during the Civil War, right? So he was for the North. But a lot of the young people, you know, circulating uh, around the Capitol were really angry that there was nobody there who represented them. And so Michael Johnson, head of Boys and Girls Clubs of Dane County, talked to the governor, and the governor set up the Val Phillips Task Force. And so I'm working with Radcliffe Bailey, the artist, to memorialize Val Phillips, probably the most important female, you know, politician, black woman to be represented, um, you know, who, who represents so many different ways of um, change in the state of Wisconsin. And so there's bipartisan support for this piece to go on the state capitol, which is, in my mind, unheard of, that there's anything bipartisan in the state of Wisconsin right now. <laughs> and the fact is that they went, they did the public process very differently. They first got bipartisan support, and then they went to uh, approach Ratcliffe just to make sure it would go up. Mm -hmm. So we'll wait and see what happens next week. <laughs> we're, we're assuming the piece is still going to go up. But that once we pass those sort of barriers, the, the conversation with Ratcliffe has been, he gave us two Maccats. One, they'll standing like this with her arm out, you know, sort of reaching out like that. And another, Val sitting in a chair, very, very beautiful minimalist chair um, based on a photograph. And at first, the group was really interested in the standing piece. Um, but, but does that just mimic the way that we memorialize men now? It's like if it's not a guy on a horse, it's a guy going like this. <laughs> and so we thought a lot about it. Val Phillips is sitting this beautiful, elegant, very attentive posture that she has in the seated piece. And we realized... In fact, that's a different way of exercising power. Val Phillips represents a new form of power in our state. And so we've all agreed that that's the, that's the piece that we want to see on the state capitol. So it'll be forward, idealized woman, um, Haig, and then Val Phillips. And she will be the first woman of color so honored in any state capitol in the country. So Wisconsin is really doing something to respond to the protests of 2020. And I think that's a really exciting thing for the state. I think that brings up another issue of partnerships, like creating partnerships. Talk to me, anyone, about the space between conceiving the idea and then finding partnerships and ways to make it come to fruition. It's a beautiful, I, the we're working on a romanticization project here at the Chazen, and so the Mass Consortium has been here since Tuesday, and I've been bugging Sanford since Tuesday. And to see what goes on behind the scenes is, to me, mind-blowing. Because, you know, you walk by a sculpture, you're like, oh, somebody put it there. You watch a documentary, you're like, oh, somebody put it there. No, it's a Kachi running all over the place and taking off his shoes and climbing on things to get all these shots and things. And so it's all this sort of, all, not sort of, all this activity in the background. So talk to me about when you think of an idea, what are those steps? How do you form those partnerships? How do you get that ball rolling? I mean, I think for me... When, when I first conceived of Blueprint, it was thinking about why don't we start to have a conversation with these monuments? Because removing them, actually, there's only one beneficiary, the person who's removing them. And, and I think that 
even when they remove them, they move them to a park somewhere. Somebody gets paid to move them there. Then somebody else gets paid to pick them up and move them back to another museum. So even when they take the piece and melt it down, they will still say, that was General Lee's ear, or that was his foot. <laughs> so the name and the monument still lives on, even if it's physically not there. So I was you know, keen to think about creating something, uh, uh, some kind of form, based off a class I did with my students. I gave them this empty plinth and I said, what would your ideal piece be? And I was speaking to the curator at the time, Leah Cole, when she said, maybe we can make it out of styrofoam. Maybe we can, if you want to make this large thing, we can speak to Quora Stone. And so I went to see Quora and they were like, yeah, we can do this thing in, in um, styrofoam. But at the same time, um, Jim and, and Heather, they were looking at how black hair can be replicated in stone. And they heard that I was a barber. And they said, oh, we're kind of fascinated by the fact that you're a barber. You actually understand hair. Maybe we could think about doing something in stone. And there was a series of conversations backwards and forwards. I'll never forget, we went for a walk in the yard, um, me, Jim, and Heather. And he was pointing at like the marble and Bianco P, these different kinds of stone. And then he, I realized that different stones speak back to you differently. That the marble and the granite, there was no negotiations. <laughs> and then he, he mentioned limestone. He said, if you look at limestone, you see all these kind of marks and these imperfections. And that was the thing. That, that's when the penny dropped, that this thing had to be made out of limestone, simply because of the way it was constructed. And then he mentioned about it being um, coming out of the ground uh, soft and hardens over time. And then backwards and forwards with the different people in inquiry. I mean, Heather is an artist. So Heather would converse with me all the time about what do you want this piece to be? And then having to translate that to all the craftspeople there. And then watching this thing come out of the ground and go on this machine. It was just an amazing collaboration. And watching this arm that carves the piece for 80 hours. And you just watch this block. And eventually you see your head, your shoulder, <laughs> your foot. But for me, the most um, uh, moment of enlightenment was flying Martin Foot in the Master Carver to finish the hands and the head. But why that was important to me, because it was a similar format when I'm a barber. Because I use the machine to create the flat top or the, the Bobby Brown or whatever it is they, they want. And then I finish it with the razor. So it's almost like the razor that I use, the cutthroat, was the metaphor for Martin Foot. And the machine was the robot that does the 80 hours. So for me, that was a wonderful arc of learning for me and collaboration. And knowing what it means where different crafts, persons you know, insert, them, insert themselves into the, into the work. And I always say, the blueprint is not my piece, it's our piece. That's how I look at it. Sanford, that sounds like Wednesday morning. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Talk to me about that experience, because how long was the conversation about hair? And Jim learned a very important lesson. You don't ask the black woman if you can touch her hair. So <laughs> talk to me about that conversation that you on Wednesday morning. So yeah, very similarly, we were discussing um, how would you depict very specifically the hair of Frederick Douglass. And those of you who are familiar with him, there's lots of documentation, there's lots of photographs of him because he really believed as soon as the technology was there to make images of black people that we needed to embrace it quickly so we could portray ourselves rather than be portrayed by others. So he was a huge advocate of that. And throughout the years, you see his hair go through different phases of textures, basically. And so our conversation was about that. And the thing that struck me as funny is that anybody who's ever done 
any type of reimagination or depiction of Frederick Douglass has had to talk about the hair. <laughs> because the hair is such a signature aspect of, of, of his, his persona, right? Um, so yes, we had a conversation. We were looking at samples that were already done in stone. And we're like, well, let me go through my my phone book right now and see who I know who might have hair like his so we can take some pictures and we can figure that out because we know that that is an aspect that we really want to um, pay some attention to. Uh, because Mark and I have seen several iterations of Frederick Douglass and we're like, hmm, the hair on that one is not as good as the hair on this one. <laughs> but the face on this one seems different than this one. And once again, we're comparing that to pictures of different of his different ages. So it became so specific that we're even to the conversation now of talking to a woman who is works in Hollywood and does hair for um, film and theater and so on. So she's worked with several types and she creates hair and wigs and so on. So she really has a hands-on idea of multiple textures as well. Just as you would, just by cutting hair, you have a different understanding of the various densities and coarseness and curls and so on. So we're trying to figure that out right now. Yeah. <laughs> it was fascinating, too, to see that because when, as you're talking, how each piece of the ideal is broken down and how, as a person who approaches a monument on the street, I see the whole thing. Again, I don't think about what it takes to get it there. I don't think about how it got there. I may show up for the actual moving of it to get some sound, because that's always cool sound when mm -hmm. trucks are around and things are grinding and growling. But that behind the scenes of what actually it takes to get there. But Naima and Mary Lou, you also have some behind the scenes work that you have to do in order to get a monument where it needs to be or a piece where it needs to be, and also to understand where they are and why they're there. Yeah, I'll jump in. <laughs> um, you know, I think as a team, um, Monument Lab is, is interesting to me because we have so many different backgrounds. You know, like I come from an arts administration background. We have researchers on our team. We have artists on our team. Um, we have historians on our team. And I think that that's like a microcosm of the of the folks that are impacted by this work. I think that how collaborative it is is really like reflective of um, you know the the vested interest we all have in what happens in public. And so um, you know the the inclusion of researchers, for example, is why like really most of our projects have a central research question um, that artists can respond to, that publics can interpret. Um, whether it's, I think one of the projects right now that we're working on is um, what is a story that is missing in public? And so it's always a question we don't know the answer to that we want to hear answers to and um, get an understanding of how folks will interact with work and also that artists um, can bring those or their own answer to, to, to life in a major way. Um, and so the, all of those pieces really inform our work and how we document it so that you know, because our projects are not always long lasting, you know, making sure that there is documentation so that there is proof that we were here, that these artists' voices were heard, that these people's um, interpretations are acknowledged. And so that takes so many different types of folks, right? Um, sometimes we're working with city governments. Sometimes we're working with um, community activists. Sometimes we're working with, you know, the, the third grade class, you know. So really being able to kind of um, appreciate all the knowledge and, um, and real desire to be seen that comes from all of those folks. It's, it, um, it's a really, it's so important to, to have that collaborative spirit. 
And I, and I would say, too, that there are, um, I used to say with Sculpture Milwaukee, there was like, uh, for every one of me, there'd be another hundred people, right? So there's the artist, the dealer, the crater, the shipper, the crane operator, the people that block off the street for the crane. You have to figure out if the sidewalk's hollow and you're all going to collapse the city. There are all these other sort of considerations um, to think about. But, you know, I came from a, a more traditional museum background and then working in the public realm for the last, you know, almost two decades, one of the biggest, I think, um, challenges for public art programs is, you know, if you go into a museum, you've already self-selected. You're there to see the art. You know who you are. You have an idea of what you're going to see. Public art, the problem is, how do you actually track any sort of impact the artist might have on the on the public? So if you drive your car by fast and your eye, eyeball glances something, is that engagement? Mm -hmm. And so the word, when I hear people say engage, we want the public to engage, I don't want you to climb on the work because it just damages it for the most part, not not exclusively. And so the work at actually sort of talking to your audience is so critical um, when it's about public art. You want to explain what you're doing. You want to put it in context for the things around you. And I find that really very exciting. So when I was in St. Louis, we would partner with people all across the community. We started a program called Loans That Don't Move so that we could actually insinuate ourselves into the Missouri History Museum who had like a giant tugboat in their collection. We would do all these kind of crazy things simply to sort of expand our audience and to sort of create this feedback loop. But I think education is really one of the hardest things when you're actually, you know, trying to engage people in public art. What was here before, if anything, and how does this relate to your life? And I think that's, that's the thing that's most interesting to me. Um, an aside, but related, um, when we did the Oracle project at Rockefeller Center, a lot of people don't realize this, but we had an interactive um, element to that, which was basically a QR code that if you scanned, it would lead you to a site. And a few times, you know, maybe once a week or so, it was sort of random timed, you could consult the Oracle. And the Oracle was voiced by uh, Michelle and Dege Ocello, um, you know, a uh, fantastic musician. Um, and Oracles typically in the past and antiquity were actually women. And they would speak in, you know, basically uh, profound and enigmatic phrases that people would have to figure out the meaning for themselves. So you could go online and you can ask Michelle questions and she would respond to you. So that was one way that we were trying to not only track some of the viewership, but also allow people who weren't in New York City to engage with the mm -hmm. piece. So that once again, it was sort of an active relationship, not a passive relationship with the work. And also thinking about uh, the behind the scenes, it was amazing to be on Fifth Avenue at two in the morning where they blocked off the street, all the lights were purple, there was a mist, mm -hmm. and then a flatbed truck came <laughs> with three huge pieces and they erected this whole thing you know, with cranes and everything and then somebody went inside where there's a ladder and had to bolt and weld from inside and then crawl out from mm -hmm. beneath mm -hmm. under uh, basically a stage. So there's a lot of coordination choreography to get these things done. Yeah. And, you know, could be hundreds of people involved with any, you know, any type of installation of this scale. Yeah. So both, Sanford, both you and Faisal work in multimedia. Talk to me, is it, what determines how you create the piece? Is it the idea? Is it the placement of the piece? Is it the lifespan of the piece? At what point does the material come in of, of what you're going to do to create these pieces? I think for me, you know, whether it's a, a piece in the public sphere or a piece that's in the sacrosanct space, it's always, you know, charged through from the idea. And for me, then the idea needs to 
sit in a particular kind of vessel or form. So, you know, in the inside Momoka, I've got a gold-plated 24-carat Koch barber chair. And people are thinking, well, why have you got a solitary barber chair inside the space? Again, I'm speaking bodily about what it was like as a five-year-old kid going to these, you know, barber shops in people's homes in the 70s. And that being my first university of learning. So I'm sitting there, I'm six years old, and my father said, you're seen and you're not heard. So I'm observing, I'm watching everybody in the room, listening to all their like, little exploits. And my dad says, block your ears. <laughs> and I have my Black Panther comic and my sketchbook and I'm drawing. So for me, that moment and that space of experiential learning and how important that was and the preciousness of that and how I was able to, tra to transition as a young person in, in, you know, in 1970s England had to be represented in some kind of artifact that was magical and talismanic in a way. And that's how the piece came into existence. And I apply the same kind of approach, whatever it is I want to make, you know. Um, same for me. It's really the idea happens first. And then it's a process of translating that into a material that I think speaks to the idea. Um, and then you deal with some of the practical issues. How is this going to live? How long can it be outside? What is this installation? Is it two months? Is it two years? And then that starts to you know, be introduced into the conversation. But for the most part, for me, at least working outside, it, I have like a palette of five or six materials that I would go to that I know can translate it. And sometimes I look at these as opportunities to make an experiment, like the, the piece in Orange County. That's a material that, to my knowledge, not many people have used for sculptural ends. It comes from a different world of design and advertising. Um, so I'm often doing some R&D and seeing what, what has already happened in architecture or design or other um, industries where I can use some of those materials and do the same thing I would with found objects in, in the studio, find a way to as assemble them together and make them work um, for the ends of the, for the full installation, you know, to last that time. So, so Marilyn, then talk to, talk to us about then the considerations and placing objects that may be out of non-traditional materials. So that's, that's the really fun thing, in a way, about um, actually critiquing the idea of monumentation. So um, one year at Sculpture Milwaukee, people complained, oh, these works aren't big enough, we couldn't see them. And you think, okay, well, <laughs> we'll figure that out. Um, we, I commissioned Carlos Rolón to wrap an entire building with vinyls on the outside. So it was like a four-story building downtown Milwaukee. And what was interesting about it, he was also critiquing the sort of um, the growth of international style, it was like re it was like another form of colonization with this sort of architectural form that meant one thing in Europe between the wars, but in, in America it means something very different, the way that it was sort of spread around the globe. Mm -hmm. um, and also I did a video one year, people just couldn't wrap their heads around that. Also lighting conditions are difficult to deal with. But one year we had an artwork by Jason Yee, it was PVC pipe that somebody, a couple people took apart. The following year, I actually got a spray-painted artwork for the side, for the sidewalk, actually. But it was a piece that critiqued the idea of shadow culture and how an image like David, Michelangelo's David, haunts artists. And in a way, if you're a sculptor, it's like you always have to pay attention to that. A figurative sculpture, David. I mean, you can't get away from it. You can get around it. How do you critique it? How do you do something very different? Um, people didn't understand the spray paint on the floor either, but it meant nobody damaged it. 
And that was a really very good discovery as well. So in some ways, you know, we're, when we're dealing with public art, you have to continually experiment and figure out what's the way to solve this problem. How do we support artists? Artists can do anything. They're such smart people. How do you actually find a way to solve these kinds of questions? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm thinking about that too, because in, in our work, we've found ourselves, um, you know, in all of the research about monuments that exist, you know, we found ourselves being like, well, you know, monuments have always changed, right? Like even Ball's work, um, you know, we learned yesterday how that, that monument has changed over time and how it requires money and mindsets and, you know, knowledge of material to, to be maintained. Um, and so a lot of times on our team, we're often thinking about the idea that if monuments are ch always changing, like what does it mean to play around with materials and in meaningful ways? Um, in our citywide exhibition in 2017 in Philadelphia, um, one of the 20 artists featured, uh, Tanya Bruguera, her work um, was meant to deteriorate. Um, you know, it was meant to, over time, have different interactions with the public to you could come back and see it change over time and it's still having this lasting impact um on, certainly on all of us but on you know a lot of folks who are able to see it and and think about um the relationship it had to you know the immigration crisis which she was um which she was reflecting on and so i think that that idea of you know how will the public interact how will the weather impact this i think it's it's open the doors for a lot of um, different ways to use materiality. Um, that's, that's just personally really, really exciting. Um, and also really turns on its head a little bit, like what does it mean to be monumental? Is it large? Is it the lasting effect? Is it, um, is it seeing yourself as powerful in it? Um, it's probably all of those things uh, to a degree, but I think it's there's a really kind of um, you know exciting intersection of those pieces. And I I want to just say one thing at the Laumeier Sculpture Park we had a piece by Ursula von Riddingsvard, um, important minimalist artist using nature in her work. And one of the things that was true for her piece is that when you skin a tree and hollow it out, it's not going to last forever. And I think a lot of museums and sculpture parks are having to deal with the fact that you have to build into your contract the fact that the piece may have to be decommissioned at some point. And not deaccessioned, decommissioned, which means this work doesn't uh, represent the artist's intention any longer. We can't you know, the artist doesn't feel happy about it. We don't, we don't have the resources to, we can't restore it, we can't rebuild it. And so there's a process by which you sort of help it go away. And what I find very radical about that is that the myth that we have in America today about things lasting forever, it's like you're an insurance adjuster, right? <laughs> you're always safe. You have to really sort of life-proof everything that you do in your world, and that's impossible. And so we have to have that sort of flexibility to understand monuments change, we all change, the world changes. Um, and, I, and I think that that's an important thing for us to recognize, you know, that things get torn down, maybe they're put back up, maybe they're not. But the meaning can change. Yeah, one of my uh, first monumental scale works was done in Harlem, and it was a 20-foot by 40-foot um, prayer rug, basically, but it was made out of colored sand. So uh, I worked with the team, and basically around 300 hours later, we had poured and sifted by hand or by tools colored sand to create this very intricate prayer rug on the floor. And uh, during the opening of the exhibition, 
people were standing around it and walking around it and so on. And at some point, um, a friend of mine's daughter somehow got afraid of something and, you know, wanted to run to her mom and literally ran across the entire piece. And, um, you know, she was so light and so fast that she just did a couple little smudges. <laughs> and the entire place, there was like a collective gasp because people were freaking out. Um, I'd already taken pictures, so I was fine. Um, but, you know, prior to that, I'd lived in Japan for three years and I had, you know, done a lot of hanging out with some monks and, and watching the sand mandalas being made. So I wanted to bring that experience there. But the funny thing about it is at the end of that exhibition, the whole thing was swept up and we, you know, dispersed into a body of water. But people still talk about that um, that project, which was like 2001 or 2002. And I find that the memory is more important and probably lasts longer, obviously, than the sand on the ground. And every time people will recall the story, it gets better and better. So, <laughs> you know, <clears throat> so there's uh, lots of ways for these pieces to last even beyond their physicality. Mm-hmm. You walked right into my next question. Thank you. My background is art history, material culture. So I think about people's relationship with objects and things. And it's difficult for me, in the beginning, it was difficult for me to talk about an object without having it in my hand. But when I realized, when I started to connect with objects that were nostalgic for me, that had some history with me in my past, I could go on, like I normally do about everything, for hours about something that I probably hadn't seen or touched in 20 years. So talk to me about that idea of, is it the monument, is it the object, or is it the story? Because your stories about your barber chair are so intimate and so powerful that whether or not I've seen the work, and I have, I still have that sense memory of what that's like because I went every Friday with my father to the barber shop, and that's why I learned to listen, and I learned what was grown folks' business and what not to repeat. Yeah, and so that, that idea of it's... Do you really truly need that object to be permanent for the story to have a long life beyond it? Anybody? <laughs> but that's such an interesting question because before writing, it was we were all oral culture, Absolutely. so there's something interesting about that, and and the fact that you know we have there have always been monuments to some degree. You know, ancient peoples were making monuments because they wanted to create a ritual space or mark mm-hmm. time, whatever it might be. Um, but I, I think the fact that memory sometimes is the most valuable thing, it, it really can be. Yeah, you know, um, I, I think being amidst like monument work, you know, as someone who was previously kind of ambivalent to monuments <laughs> has always been interesting to me in part because I know that my stories, my family stories live somewhere else. Um, and, you know, to that point of like the storytelling, the oral histories, the dinner tables, the, you know, the experiences that kind of continue on is where a lot of that is. So it never is just start and finish with with a monument, but the monument is part of that process of, of telling stories. Um, you know, I, I think about um, a project we did in North Philadelphia um, in 2021 called Staying Power, um, where we the that central research question was, what is a staying power in your neighborhood? In a city that's rapidly changing, um, this is a this is a neighborhood in Philly that was feeling is feeling um, the pressure and weight of rapid gentrification, and so that idea of staying power amidst the pandemic, um, you know, was really important. And so one of the prototype monuments was uh, where it featured um, uh, photos by Deb Willis, um, you know, particularly focused on women women. At, at work, 
women-owned businesses, whether it was the, the candy shop where a lot of folks learn how to count, um, or you know the, the dress shop you know, where folks got their Sweet 16 dresses. You know, that, those stories, um, even in image, spoke volumes. And I brought my mother to the, to the opening and she was like, I know, like my mom's new to Philly, you know? And she was like, I know these women. Like I have, you know, the, I, she related to that in her way. And so I think that, that transcended and, and even being able to document it and have those, those images live on even at like at a large scale, um, constructed on scaffolding you know, in a, in a community park, you know, it really, it was really powerful to kind of continue the ways that our stories are shared. So, I, I mean, I, I really think that the monument is part of that storytelling, but we know, we have to know that our stories exist outside of, of these, of these figures and, and statues as well. And growing up as a, as a young person in London, you know, my parents came from Jamaica, so I was born in London. So my other siblings, they were all born in Jamaica. So all I had was their stories memories then all I had was my imagination to make these things up and there were some practices that they brought to London so for example the hot comb and I know you're you're, you're doing this I have a scar right Right, here right (laughs) so I'm a six-year-old kid I'm walking downstairs and I'm like what's that smell so I look and there's my two sisters one sitting on a chair and the other one I see the gas stove on and there's this red hot object on the gas stove and I see her picking it up. I'm like, oh my goodness gracious. Mm-hmm. And she puts it in her hair. Mm-hmm. And I see all this steam. Mm-hmm. And that was the smell. So, you know, there were certain mm-hmm. objects, there were certain smells. Um, there were certain stories that I had no visual reference other than what my parents would, would tell me. And then they would tell me about what it was like coming into the UK, going to these rental properties in, in Notting Hill Gate. And it was only by the the, you know, the um, grace of um, the Jewish landlord Rackman that they were able to rent properties. But they said they would see a sign, no Irish, no dogs, no blacks. So there are certain reference points that are inculcated in my memory that will somehow find their way out in the world in some kind of solid state, some kind of form to help me navigate, you know, their histories. So in some ways, my entire practice is giving their ideas form or giving their early thoughts form, giving their stories form. So I think storytelling is, 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 is really important. I thought you had to... No, I thought I was looking at you because you looked like you had something to say. Um, well, I mean, I think I'm still figuring out my relationship between permanence and impermanence when thinking about uh, projects. Um, you know, I already mentioned the piece with the sand, so that was obviously, you know, ephemeral. Um, I grew up doing graffiti in Los Angeles, and anytime you put a piece up, you knew somebody can come right around and just deface it. Um, I've worked with antique quilts, and I'm painting directly on them, which some people consider defacement and other people consider embellishment. But the fact of the matter is a lot of these are being thrown out. So they would have been gone unless they became part of this you know, artistic intervention. Um, and then cycle through all those materials all the way to working in marble and working in bronze, which are supposedly you know, permanent works. And I think all of that for me is just sort of like a long um, experiment to figure out what does leave an impact and what does that impact mean and how does that shift? I don't think we can predict it all. Um, So that's why I still talk about it in terms of experimentation. Mm -hmm. Documentation becomes important because at least we know this thing happened, but how does it really reside in people's 
on a you know, people on a cellular level, you know, the verdict is still out for me. But I am, I am still interested in that dance between permanence and impermanence, and for people to think about that because, in essence, it is a metaphor for our life. Yeah. And I'm also interested in how you have that dialogue with the public in your work. These are intimate, your intimate knowledge, your intimate memories. How do you create a dialogue with the public in the work then? I mean, I think one of the things I, I do, I think I did it here when I first came here in 2014, is this thing called Life Salon, where, you know, I have a barber chair, place it in the middle of the museum, and I cut somebody's hair and we have a conversation. And for me, it's one of the most tender, disarming things where some of the most obscure people will come up and they will start talking. And I've done it all over the world. I've done it in probably four or five continents. And it elicits the same kind of response. It really disarms the really kind of, you know, sterile, you know, snooty art environment because everybody can find a part of themselves in the piece just by sitting, listening and being present. And I think, you know, that's one way that um, I think that idea of permanence um, and impermanence um, factors into my own work because our hair is always growing, it's always moving and it, tra it, keeps, it gives us the trace of our ancestors and what we learned in COVID that hair always wins <laughs> <laughs> and people are laughing but they know it's true you know, they, couldn't, they couldn't colour those roots they couldn't straighten the hair out <laughs> they couldn't hide that ball patch um, and the hair wins and there's something beautiful that your ancestors come and visit you <laughs> at that moment so I think that notion of lifestyle is a way that I try to keep myself connected and almost in step with um, the public is there anything that any of you would like to tell us that I haven't asked you yet <laughs> both <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to Meet Me at the Chasen. This episode featured a live panel discussion entitled Monuments Reimagined, Contemporary Artists as Changemakers. Meet Me at the Chasen is a production of the Chasen Museum of Art on the campus of UW-Madison in Madison, Wisconsin. For more information about the museum, its collections and exhibitions, visit chasen.wisc.edu. I'm your host, Jonathan Fees. Thank you for listening. Do it around here.